Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Hey everyone, it's Andrew here. I just wanted to get on and give you a quick heads up. The audio recording that you're about to listen to is going to have a little bit of a lower quality to it compared to our typical podcast. And that's because this Sunday, because of an AC issue in the cafeteria, we had to move everything outside and do an outdoor spontaneous service. And because of that, we had a limited amount of equipment, but we still have a recording for you. So despite the audio, pray that you enjoy the podcast. So yeah, so for this morning, I want to begin with uh, just kind of kicking off uh, our our series here, a little introduction, a little bit of context. Um, We're going to talk about faith today. So Hebrews 10 is where we're going to read, verse 32, down through chapter 11, verse 3. And if you'd like to take notes, the title of my message this morning is Foundations of Faith. Foundations of Faith. Go ahead and jot that down. And as you are, let's read together. Hebrews chapter 10. Mike will have the verses for us up on the screen. Stellar. Love it. Hebrews 10, verse 32, into chapter 11, verse 3. Can you guys see what's up here, by the way? I'm just curious. Yeah, some of you. Good. A couple nods, a couple shakes of the head. Good. Decent. Decent. Decent amount of you. Well, open your Bible. That'll work too, right? All right. Hebrews 10, 32 says, But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains, and you even joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, some translations say the confiscation of your property, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, in light of what you're currently going through, do not cast away your confidence in God, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. It's the reward on the other side of the finish line. And then he quotes from the book of Habakkuk in verse 37. For yet a little while, I love this, and he who is coming will come. He who is coming will come. That speaks of Jesus and his return. And he will not tarry. When it's time for him to come, he's not going to be late. He's going to come just as he promised. Verse 38, now in the meantime, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. Here we are in the in-between, in the limbo period. We're called to live by faith. But if anyone draws back, God says, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we, the church, are not of those who draw back. We're not of those who retreat. We're not of those who drift away. But we're of those who believe to the saving of the soul. We're those who walk by faith. Chapter 11 says, now faith, this faith that he's been talking about, is the substance of things hoped for. And faith is the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were made or were framed by the word of God that, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So this is the word of the Lord, to which we say, thanks be to God. Uh, let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for the book of Hebrews. Uh, We thank you this morning that though the author of this book, the the, the true author who we don't absolutely know about uh, is anonymous, God, we thank you that it's inspired by your Holy Spirit still for our learning and for our our faith today. And so, Lord, you know where each person in this room is at today with faith. Uh, Whether they're those that are confident, as it says here in this passage, and they're those that are living right now by faith, or God, even if there's people here that have drawn back, they've lost their confidence, they've casted it away. Lord, Lord, you are, your word says, the author and the finisher of our faith. And so, as we begin this new series, it's, it's not just about studying new things. We always believe this, that God, anytime we're, we're going to embark on a new journey like this, um, we, we believe, God, that you're trying to take us to some new places as individuals and as a community. And over the next few months, I believe you're seeking to grow us from faith to faith, from one level of faith to a greater level of faith. And so it's just my prayer now as we get into this, as we start this off, You've tested our faith a little bit. Here we are outside. But Lord, here's my prayer. I pray that you would increase our faith. Maybe there's some people in here that just need to pray that sincerely right now. God, would you grow our faith? Would you grow my faith? We believe, God. Would you help our unbelief? And may you use this next season in your word to produce that faith in us. Uh, God, anoint me now, I pray, by your spirit to proclaim your word here outside with uh, my family, your church, Solus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All righty. Well, as I said, title of the message, if you hadn't written that down, Foundations of Faith. I got a leaf on my iPad. Hold on. Classic. Um, I want to begin with a question. I want you to think about this question. As you think about your own faith and where you're at today, I want you to ask yourself, Whose life and example of faith has most inspired your own? Just take a moment, kind of go through the role. Whose life and example of faith has most inspired your own? I could probably create a very large list of people that God has brought into my life or that I have looked on at uh, from afar um, who, who God has used to inspire me to greater faith. I really think at the end of the day, that's where the most growth happens, not just sitting alone with the pages of scripture, but seeing God's word alive and active in each other's lives. There's just something about the community effect of being around Christians, of being around people of faith that inspires our own in a way that just being alone can't. There's something to an example of faith that shows you what God can do, that shows you the kind of life that God can create. I'm not sure if that's been relevant for you. It certainly has been for me. I have to say at the top of the list, this is of course such a, uh, a classic answer, but it, it's genuine. For me at the top of the list, the person that has most inspired my faith is my mom. My mom. You thought I was going to say Jesus, right? Of course, if I had Jesus inspired this guy's faith. Okay. Um, that would have been like the classic church answer, but another maybe classic church answer, but true nonetheless, uh, for me growing up in the church, I had so many incredible examples, some poor examples, some good examples. And even now as a pastor, there's, there's examples I look up to and, and, and those I don't. And there's fathers as a, as a dad and as a husband. There's people that I follow. Now, 
when I think about the person that's impacted me the most though, out of all the examples, it's my mom. I grew up in an imperfect but a genuine Christian household. A household where my parents had come to genuine saving faith in Jesus. My mom's was a story of compromising and then coming back to Jesus. My dad was a story of having nothing to do with Jesus. And then if you know him now, having everything to do with Jesus. Uh, my dad has the, the coolest testimony. My dad got saved driving on I-95. Driving on I-95, he had to pull over to the side of the road uh, because he just, uh, he's, the way he was describing it, he was going through some stuff. And as he was driving on 95, this is years ago, he just says that he opened up his heart to the love of Jesus. That's, that was my dad's story. Isn't that awesome? Like it wasn't in a church and a confessional and this whole, it was just like driving in traffic, probably of all places where it's like, I feel farthest from God often in that moment. But my dad just opened his heart and he just became overwhelmed. He, he'll tell you, actually, I don't know if he will, but maybe you, if you ask him, uh, he had to pull over to the side of the road, just being so overwhelmed with the love of God. Like just such an incredible story. Um, and it's funny too, if you, the way my dad was, like my mom had been praying for him for years and it was, he like didn't tell her for like two months that he gave his life to Jesus. It's the weirdest thing. And that, or, or it was like, a, yeah, it was a while back. And, he, and, he, and I remember the way my mom said it is, my dad, they were in the kitchen and my dad just looked at her and said, honey, I got baptized in the Holy Spirit a couple months ago. That's what he said to her. Like, okay. What? Like, you know, it's just like, did you pay the bills? I got baptized in the Holy Spirit two months ago. Like, so he just kind of all of a sudden like shared, like I forgot to tell you about this life-changing encounter I had with God. Um, but my mom was really the, the prayer warrior behind my dad's journey, uh, praying for him day in and day out. I mean, and that was the same for me as well. Um, as my mom saw my own life path taking me to all sorts of destructive places, my mom persevered by faith. She was, she was believing for something that was not in, there was no evidence for it in the moment but she persevered by faith. She, she is the most inspiring example to me of faith, not just in how she prayed, but, and maybe as you think about your person, there's a, there's a kind of a relationship and a, a similarity here. It was just her genuineness. Like my, I, as a kid, I never once doubted that my mom genuinely believed that Jesus loved her. Though she may, she may have struggled, like she genuinely believed it. That, that's sometimes the most impactful thing that we can give someone else is not just our perfect faith, but is it real? Like, is it actually genuine? So that's what most inspired me. You know, back to that point about how helpful it is. It's so helpful to not walk with Jesus alone, but to have inspirational examples that you've surrounded yourself with that'll, that'll bring you further in where your faith is at. Now, um, it's interesting, in light of this, this is why Hebrews chapter 11, this study we're going to be doing, this is why this whole chapter in the Bible was written. Hebrews chapter 11 wasn't written randomly to go, who are some of the top homies of faith in history? Like, what's our list, you know? Like, who are some great people of faith? Let's make a list and throw it in the Bible, just to have that there so that nobody can argue, you know? No, that, that's not where Hebrews 11 comes from. Hebrews 11, this great hall of faith, of these great achievements and, and examples of faith, are written to be an inspiration. Listen closely. Hebrews 11 is written to be an inspiration to some discouraged Christians who are struggling to live by faith. Struggling to live by faith. That's why Hebrews 11 is written as an example to inspire these discouraged Christians who are over it. 
who are done with faith, who want nothing more to do with it. And the reasons for that is because these Christians are under pressure. Uh, they're, they're facing both external and internal pressure in their current context. Uh, and we read about it a little bit. They're facing first external pressure from the culture. And, and the culture is, listen closely, making it harder and harder to be a Christian without consequence. That's pressure. And I mean real consequence, by the way. Not just like, you can't come sit in my restaurant. But like, you're going to lose your family. You're going to lose your, we read it there, they're going to lose their property. Uh, there's, there's language there that describes a time previously that they had walked through as, as Christian Jews, where because of their faith in Jesus, previously, their entire property had been confiscated. All of their possessions taken away from them. And, and the writer of Hebrews is commending them, going, hey, remember that time in the past? Remember how much your faith has gone through? Remember when that happened? And you accepted it joyfully? That's, by the way, crazy. I don't know if I, I, I don't know if I can wrap my head around that. Someone knocks on my door and says, hey, you're a Christian. We're going to take your, your vehicle. We're going to take your home and all your possessions. And I go, sure. You know, anything else? You want my tunic as well? You know, like, I, I can't even begin to imagine that. Accepting it joyfully. But he's saying that, that's, that's where they were at because they were so non-materialistic and so heavenly minded that they just said, okay, it's not mine anyway. Whatever, it's going to pass away. I have heavenly possessions. You can take this. So, so the author of Hebrews is like writing to them saying, look at, look at what you've gone through. But what he points out is it's also what they're currently going through. You know, I found this to be true. Um, I found that despite what my faith has gone through, pressure is still pressure. Like because, now, does God build our faith? Does pressure do great things for our faith? Absolutely. Does that mean that our faith can't still falter in trial? Of course not. And so Paul sees it, or I think it's Paul. The author of Hebrews, you're going to hear me calling the author of Hebrews Paul a lot on accident, okay? So just get used to it. Paul is code for whoever the heck the author is, <laughs> all right? The author of Hebrews knows that these people are facing pressure externally. And listen, that external pressure that they're facing from culture, making it harder and harder for them to be a Christian without consequence it's starting to affect them internally. It's going from external pressure to now internal pressure. Pressure to draw back in faith. He tells them, don't cast off your confidence. That's what they're tempted to do. They're tempted in the face of cultural pressure to just give up. And when you read through the book of Hebrews, you see all these different exhortations to not drift away from Jesus in times when it gets hard. He, he exhorts them, stay in community, stay repentant, Keep confessing your struggles and your sin because your heart is going to get hardened if you don't. So, so the book of Hebrews is written calling these discouraged Christians out of their compromise, their temptation even, to drift away. And instead, the call is to keep going, to live by faith as God's word calls God's people. I love that, this picture of enduring. He says, don't cast off your confidence. I love that scripture. Don't cast off your confidence which has great reward. The finish line, though it might not be in sight, it is ahead. You know, they're living, these Christians are living in the same tension that you and I are living in as well. It's this limbo period between the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus. It's a tension that we live in, and it's a tension we must walk in through faith. 
faith in the meantime. Jesus says, when the Son of Man returns, will he really find faith? Uh, now, in, in the face of that discouragement and that exhortation for them to keep going by faith, he gives this hall of examples to inspire them, as I said. Look at these people who have walked by faith. Um, and, and he gives those examples in order for them to, to imitate. He says in Hebrews 6.12, don't become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience have inherited the promises. So again, this is those examples around you. So Hebrews 11, written to those discouraged Christians facing external and internal pressure, the author writes Hebrews 11 to say, look at these examples. Imitate these examples. Be like these people. You're not alone. You might feel like you're the only Christian in your workplace, and that's where the pressure's coming from. The only Christian in your family, whatever it may be. But you're not alone. You have, he'll say in chapter 12, this great cloud of witnesses that have run this race before, that are running it with you. You have a church community that's there to support you and encourage you. So, so that's where chapter 11 comes from. Now, what I love about the way that the author starts chapter 11 is he doesn't just go right to the examples. All right, like, hey, you need to leave by faith. You got to keep going. Don't give up in the, in the face of the pressure. And be inspired by Abraham. It's like, okay. Yeah. Or check out Enoch. He walked with God and was no more. It's like, cool, all right? Like, you, he doesn't just kind of go through and say, look at these guys. He begins in verses 1 through 3. We just read those as well. He begins in those three verses by giving a foundation of faith. This is so important. Not just a call to faith, but a foundation for their faith. You know, in the Christian life, when it comes to the importance of having a good theological foundation, uh, I've noticed there tends to be one of two errors that we can often fall into. The first error is when all we have is truth without any practice. It's like you could quote every verse about faith. You could tell me what it is front, back, and behind. You, you can give me every understanding you have. It's just like theological big head, no practice syndrome. So, so it's truth. But we learned last week what Jesus said, that he who hears these sayings of mine knows them but doesn't do them is building on a faulty foundation. That's not a good foundation. So that's one error is truth without practice. Just being a know-it-all but not doing anything about it, not changing and making decisions accordingly. The other extreme of this is also very dangerous. And it's practicing without truth practicing without any theological foundation. It's this assumption that says, God only cares about what I do. It doesn't matter what I believe. It doesn't really matter what's true. As long as I live a good life. And, you know, you've heard the expression that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. That sort of common euphemism that, that really just says, it's not just about doing things. Jesus came to earth and said, I am the truth that you need. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus didn't just come to give a bunch of new behaviors for humans to adopt. He came to inform the lies that are flooding our minds with what's true, with what God says. He came to give us, listen, a foundation of truth to build our lives upon. You know, I think as a church, we want to be a nice balance of this. Um, and I don't know where we fall perfectly on the spectrum. It might teeter month to month. You know, typically churches do fall in one of either category. Like, oh, that's a church, that's like a Bible knowledge church over there. You want to learn some stuff, all right? Want to exercise your spiritual brain? Get in there, okay? Like, that's where you're going to go to learn some things. Oh, them? 
they don't teach you a thing, okay? They just tell you what to do. Very pragmatic, very intellectual, and maybe we should get better at not just critiquing what's lacking, but affirming what is present and going, both of those are really important things. We want to be, as a community of people, as Christians, we want to be a nice hybrid of both of those things. We want to be theologically informed, but not spiritually inactive, okay? We want to be spiritually active as well. And so in Hebrews 11, I love that the whole chapter starts with a foundation. The whole chapter is going to be very practical. Here's how to live by faith. Look at this example. Look at that example. Look at this person. Look at that person. But before you just start going and doing, make sure you have a solid foundation. Make sure that what you're standing on isn't just your assumptions, but it's the truth of God's very word. So here in this passage, we've got four specific things uh, about faith that help us have a good foundation for the weeks ahead. All right, this is like faith 101 this morning. And I want to actually specify that biblical faith one-on-one, 101. Uh, and in this passage, we see a couple key aspects, uh, key foundations of what biblical faith, uh, how biblical faith functions, what it is and such. We see where faith goes. We see in this passage what faith is, biblical faith. We see how faith works and why faith matters. Uh, the first thing we see is what we'll call the object of faith, and this is where faith goes as we establish this foundation of faith. The passage begins with reminding us where biblical faith is placed. And this is such an important distinction when you're talking about, you know, like we're all called to live by faith. But like the word faith is not an exclusively Christian thing. It's a common cultural value, you know, and virtue. Like, oh man, you just got to have faith, brother. You just got to have a little faith in me. You know, you got to have faith, 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 right? Like how many examples are there in culture where faith is just uplifted as a general virtue? You just need more faith, man. You need more faith. Uh, and, and Scripture, though it affirms faith, Scripture takes the time to um, call us out of any kind of faith that's in the wrong thing. It's not about, do you have faith? The question is, what do you have faith in? Tim Keller says it so beautifully this way. It's why this point is so important to know what is Christian faith trusting in. Tim Keller says this, he says, it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Think about that for a second. The salvation is not how confident we were that the AC was going to be working this morning. That didn't save us. Right? It's been well said. A lot of people had confidence in the Titanic. It's, a great, it's, it's not the strength. At the end of the day, it's not how strong your faith is in the object that determines if it will save you, if it will deliver. It's the reliability of what you're trusting in. It's the trustworthiness of what you're trusting in. And Tim Keller says it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of faith. You can have strong faith in a weak branch and the branch will still break, yet you can have weak faith in a strong branch and you're fine. You know, Jesus said it this way. He said, if you have faith like a mustard seed, it might be nothing more than the smallest seed in Israel's agricultural currency. But even if your faith is that, it could be that small, but if it's in Jesus, you could say to this mountain, get up and go over there. 
It's amazing what tiny faith in a big God can do compared to big faith in a false God. The object of your faith matters. Now, this has great implications, by the way, for our salvation. Because we are told we are not saved by the strength of our faith in the gospel, but the fact of our faith in the gospel. When we get to heaven, many people are going to have a strong faith before God in their religion, in their performance, in their good works. And Tim Keller says that's a fatally inferior mistake. Jesus is, is a good Savior. That's the hope of our salvation. It's not how great our faith is, but how great of a Savior Jesus is that we're trusting in. And so there's great implications for this. But there's also practical. Uh, this idea that faith really is, is not just virtuous in and of itself, but it's only as valuable as what it's trusting in. And, and so Hebrews begins with that in chapter 11. And it tells us what the object of Christian faith is. What makes it valuable is what it trusts in. Faith is, notice this, the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So we have two categories of, or rather two objects of Christian faith, we could say. You have things hoped for. That's the first category of, of what we trust in. Things hoped for. And then also, and these play together, you have things unseen. This could mean first, this could mean both present un, unfulfilled things that we're hoping in that God has promised, things hoped for. And it could also mean present realities that we don't see, but they're true and we're believing by faith. Nonetheless, they, they, they are the two objects. Now, here's a good question, okay? Because we're trying to get to the object of what we're trusting in. What things hoped for? Like, I hope for a lot of things all the time. I've been looking at my Magic Seaweed app. It looks like we're going to have some fun waves this week, hopefully, from Hurricane Larry or whatever his cousin's name is out in the Atlantic. All right? I don't know. Judah's really getting into surfing. We're trying to be out in the ocean more. I'm hoping for that. How reliable is the object of that? You know, living in South Florida? It's a weak branch. It's a weak branch. Okay. But what things hoped for? Or rather, what things not seen? You know, we believe a lot of things right now that we don't see. Like literally, physically, right now, there's a lot of things we believe in that we don't see. So, so what is the author talking about when he talks about Christian faith deals with things hoped for and things unseen? Well, in the context here, the things hoped for and the things not seen are things that God has spoken. Things that God has spoken. We as Christians, we trust in, we have faith in, the object, the strong branch of our faith is what God has said. His promises. Um, this is really important for us as Christians to make sure we're familiar with what God has said. Two dangers that we can fall into if we're not familiar with the things that God has said to hope for and, and the things that aren't seen but God has promised. I think these two extremes, we can either live in presumption, we can be presuming all the time about God, where we're like believing God for things he's never promised. Or like things happen and we're like, why did that happen, God? I thought so and so and so presumption can be a dangerous place with our faith a lot of times faith falters not because God lied but because we presumed on something that he never actually said so you know one of the best is Jesus telling his disciples in this world here's a biblical promise that you can claim you will have tribulation that's not something that we necessarily hope for things hoped for <laughs> I hope for some tribulation but, but it's still something that Jesus promised. And so we've got to make sure we're not presuming 
But on the other hand, we've got to make sure we're not neglecting what God has promised. That we're aware of his promises. I wonder how much of our Christian life is thinning out because of, of a lack of living in what God has promised. Like if we were only like if we were only more mindful of what God has said about my life right now, if we were only more mindful about what's true, what could that do in our lives if we lived with a mindfulness of God's word, not per- presuming on God, nor do we need to neglect the incredible things that he has promised. So th- that is first, that's the object of faith. Okay, Christian faith, where does it go? It goes into God's word, which is another way to say it goes to trust in God. You know, trust in someone's word is to trust in that person. So that's where Christian faith goes. Here's the next uh, aspect of this, and it's the nature of faith. And it's what faith is. Now that we know where it goes, Hebrews is going to help us understand what it actually is. How is it that we're engaging with what we're hoping in from God? And he tells us this, that faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. It's kind of an interesting two-part definition. I don't think this is the full and complete only definition uh, of faith. Um, In the Bible, there's a lot of different examples. This is certainly the most descriptive. And there's two words that the author says Christian faith is. Christian faith is substance and it's evidence. Some of your translations read uh, assurance and conviction or confidence and proof. Okay? But substance and evidence. So let's start with, with uh, the word substance. The author says biblical faith is substance. I love that. Now, that could mean confidence. That could mean that I have a substantial confidence in what God has said. That my faith displayed is me being sure of what he's promised. That's certainly faith. Or being assured of even things I can't see. That, that's definitely faith. But the word substance has been translated uh, in a couple of the, uh, the different English translations for a reason. That's a really helpful translation. Uh, when, when I think about this idea of substance, what, I, what comes to mind is um, just a, a handful of faith. A substantial is another way to say it. A substantial handful of faith. That, that's really nice. Praise the Lord. Um, so remember, we're talking about things that we're hoping for. So faith is the substance of what I'm hoping for. The degree to which you're believing in what you're hoping for, what God's promised, is your faith. How much of it is there? Uh, there? There's language in Scripture that talks about laying hold of what God has promised. That's faith. A question to ask is how much of a substantial handful do you have of the things that God has promised with your faith? How substantial is it? You know, Jesus would often, when he would meet different people, he would often quantify the degree of their faith and its substance. Uh, to one person, I think this is interesting, in Matthew 8, right, right, this is the disciples. He uses them as the worst example. I love this. He says, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? That was the substance. Little substance, not a lot. Uh, to, to a woman who was coming to Jesus in desperation, he said, O you of great faith. Said, great is your faith. To his, his boys, he's like, un poco faith. Substance, not a lot of substance to your faith. Like, yeah, but it's a mustard seed. Yeah, you're right, it's a mustard seed. But I'm calling you to greater faith. 
And so to his disciples, little faith, uh, to this woman, he's like, great. That's great. That's great faith right there. Now, I, I love this other example in Matthew 8. It's the centurion who's coming to Jesus, asking Jesus to heal his servant without even coming to where his servant is. And he says, it says, Jesus, when he heard this guy say that, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Imagine if Jesus said that about you. He's like, hold up. Best faith I've seen? Best faith I've ever seen, not even in Israel. So isn't that cool? Jesus is quantifying faith. He, he's, he, he almost judges the degree of the substance of our faith. I want you to think about that for a second. What's the substance of your faith? What's the, the quality and the context and, or the content of your faith? Is there great substance to your faith? Is there little substance to your faith? Thank you. I'm to break out into a praise dance over here. You know? Praise break! talking to somebody about that earlier. That's fun. All right. So it's not just substance. It's also evidence, okay? So faith is substance. It's the, the handful of what you're actually trusting in and the degree of it. But it's also, I love this, it's evidence of things not seen. You know, most people would say, the reason why I don't have faith is because I don't really have enough evidence. You know, and that's interesting because if you had, if you could see, you wouldn't need evidence, right? Like, if, if we saw Jesus rising from the dead with our own eyes, we saw him appear, like those over 500 witnesses did, we wouldn't need to depend on what they saw and the evidence of their testimony. But this is often for a lot of people, the word evidence is, is a big part of, of where faith, I think, struggles. Uh, there's a great example of this in the Gospel of John that I think kind of helps with this. It's Thomas, one of the disciples. He's, you know, poor guy gets called Doubting Thomas. Like, that's his name forever. He was, he's probably a good guy. Like, there's other, like, even in this passage, he's just a genuine seeker. You know, why can't we call him Awesome Thomas, okay? Poor guy, Doubting Thomas. Thomas was the one disciple that could not believe what he was hearing, that Jesus was alive. He's like, I need evidence. Now, he had evidence. He had an eyewitness account from his from his best friends who would end up giving their lives for what they saw. But he's like, no, I need more evidence. <laughs> I need more evidence. Now, here's, here's what's cool. Uh, Th Thomas, who's called the twin, one of the 12 was not with them when Jesus showed up. The other disciples said to him, yo, we've seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I need to see the wounds and I need to physically touch it I'm going to slap myself as I'm doing it. Like, I need to be so convinced that this is real, beyond a shadow of a doubt, have complete evidence, and then I'll believe. Okay? It says, after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, he's like, Thomas, I was listening, okay? Reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but be believing. Thomas ends up saying, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Here's the evidence. Now you have faith. But he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now this, this actually goes back to what he says here. 
This is such a beautiful balance that Jesus strikes here when it comes to evidence. Notice that he doesn't rebuke Thomas for wanting evidence. He doesn't go, I'm not showing you the holes in my belief. You want evidence? None of it. Blind faith. No, he goes, here. You know, God's the same way. God God isn't hiding, by the way. Keeping all the evidence of his existence to himself. He goes, here. Here's the evidence. Yet at the same time, he says, don't be unbelieving. He calls out the root issue in Thomas's heart wasn't that there was a lack of evidence. It was that he was unwilling to believe. That's interesting. I mean, I believe this. Like, I believe there is more than enough evidence to believe in the existence of God and to believe that Jesus is the resurrected Lord, that Jesus rose from the dead and he's Lord. And I feel like I've I've been aware of that evidence for a long time. It's funny how, like, my bout with agnosticism and atheism when I was, like, 17 and, like, just inhaling the wrong things and thinking I was a philosopher. Like, in that time of life, it's amazing how how much my skepticism just increased over and over uh, the, the, the farther I would distance my heart from God. And there was always a connection there between what was going on in my head and also what was going on in my heart, especially sin. Like, I, I found this that, like, and I don't want to like just judge every person that's a skeptic, and that's okay. But I've just found that it's really easier easier to be an atheist when you're struggling with sin. It's like, well, because I don't have to really think about the consequences or the like. Oh, it's just you know. And, and so, I, I think there's a way to be sympathetic towards people that have questions and general questions. At the end of the day, like it really comes down to your heart. It comes down to like, are you willing? If Jesus were to show up right now in the flesh. I think of the example of Lazarus, who's like, there's the rich man who's in hell, and he's telling Abraham, please, you know, uh, let, can I go and tell my brother so that they can believe you? And he's like, we've sent them the prophets. I mean, think about Judas. Judas had evidence. Judas saw God in the flesh. That didn't keep Judas from walking away from faith. See, faith is such a, a deeply heart-rooted thing. It's a, it's a willingness to submit to what's true, more than just a willingness to believe it with your eyes. Because here's also what's true. Everything requires faith. Whatever evidence you've come across, everything requires faith. You ever been on jury duty? It's crazy how much, like, those lawyers are good, you know? And, like, sometimes it's like, okay, evidence demands a verdict. Other times it's like, how are you so good at at making two things be true at once in this room right now? And and listen, with God, there, there comes a point where there's enough evidence. It's are you going to trust in what's true? It's the evidence, and I love this, of things unseen. Faith itself is the evidence. I love that it doesn't say there's evidence and then there's faith. But our faith itself, it, it is the evidence to what, what can't be seen. You know, I think of like, if you were to come to my house, if I'm watching the kids, uh, we would all be praying in that moment. But also, if Brittany's like 10 minutes out from home and we, we can track her, thank God on the app, you can come to my house and you won't see Brittany, but you're going to know she's coming because we're cleaning, okay? <laughs> like, all the kids hopefully are helping and we're getting to work. There's a tremendous, tremendous amount of incentive. And, and that, that faith, okay, is, that's displayed that Brittany's coming, okay? She's on her way. That's evidence of her arrival. And that's what he's saying here. When we live by faith, it's evidence of Jesus' coming. Such great language. So, so we, we saw... 
we saw first where faith goes. We see what faith is. This is also important. How does faith work, the mechanics of faith? You know, if we're to look under the hood of faith and really figure out how does it work, okay, I see what it's in. It's in God. I see what it is. It's this substance. It's this trust that's, that's um, a substantial laying hold of what God's promised that gives evidence to what I'm believing in. But how exactly does it work? And he, here's how Scripture would lead us to understand how faith works. Uh, faith works in the heart, with the mind, to the feet. Faith works in the heart, with the mind, to the feet. We see this displayed over and over in chapter 11, especially. Faith that's a substance in the heart of things hoped for. <laughs> And it's with the mind because it considers things, but then it translates to action. So, so first, it's in the heart. Hebrews 10 says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So that's where faith is. It's in the heart. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we draw near to God with a true heart. Here's what scripture calls for in full assurance of faith in my heart about what God says, the substance of that. But it doesn't just work in the heart, it works also with the mind. Now this is such, I think, a counter idea to what a lot of us, or even what culture thinks about faith. Like, faith culturally is often understood to be just this, like, blind thing. Like, hey, if you're a Christian, make sure you leave your brain behind and follow your heart. You know? Like, that's often the idea, is that... You know, here's how you get more faith. You think less. And, and the Bible would strongly disagree with that. The scriptures actually would say the reason why a lot of us don't have enough faith is not because we're thinking too much, but it's because we're thinking too little. Our, our mind is such a major part of faith. When we go through Hebrews 11, we see that what people are thinking about is affecting their faith. So Abraham considers in his mind who God is and who God has been, and that informs his faith in the moment with Isaac, that God is able to do the exceedingly, uh, you know, whatever he wants, whatever he's able to do. I, I love the example in, in chapter uh, 11, verse 3. It says, by faith, here's what we do by faith. I love this. By faith, we understand. That's so foreign to us. A lot of us were like, either we have faith or we understand, one or the other. What if like you understand by faith? That's an interesting idea. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are invisible. You know, here in this passage he's speaking to the creation of the world. Um, which, as far as I know, nobody was here to see that happen. Okay? Of course, none of us were there to see that happen. It's unseen. We're believing something that we cannot see. But just because we weren't there to see it doesn't mean it's without reason or logic. By faith, we think about it and we go, how did we get here? You know, who, who, who boomed the Big Bang, you know? Like, who, who kick-started this whole thing? Who's, and we, we go, this had an intelligent designer. And you can get into a lot of thinking with that and have a lot of fun. You, you can go into the, just the, the fine-tuning of the universe. You can go to, into things like, one of my favorite evidences of God is the coconut. You know? coconuts you know just how a coconut has within itself the water it needs to wash up on a beach and become something like that i guess you know perfect we're outside okay so like just you you look at creation you see the the, the ordering and you go wow with my reason i believe that god spoke this world into, into being 
that the design reflects a designer. And this isn't just for creation. Like, think about your own life. Where is it that God is calling for you to have faith right now? Where and in what situation is God calling you to trust him? In what situation is God calling you to faith? And what do you need to think about to stir your faith? What do you need to understand? What do you need to, to, to meditate on for your faith? Faith works in the heart with the mind, and this is probably the most important, uh, and it works to the feet. Like this is what makes biblical faith unique. It's not just things that we think about. Biblical faith is, is, you know, we're not allowed to just get away with, oh, I feel this and I think about this. Faith, according to scripture, must translate. If it's true, it must translate to the feet in action. It must be, be observed. Uh, he tells us this, that it was by faith that the, uh, those elders that are listed there in Hebrews 11, they were able to obtain a good testimony. For by it, they did some things that we now read about. Uh, so, so important. You know, in the book of James, we see this idea is explained. Um, James 2, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. He says, but even the demons believe and tremble. Some have said, like, at least the demons tremble. You know? um, but, but the picture here is, is, okay, you believe something. Great, you believe it. Well, show me what you believe. Show me what you truly believe by what you do, by how you act. That is the truest expression of our faith. Like if we're trying to get a good grasp on where our faith is at, just observe your life this past week and go, here's where I need to grow. You know, all, all sin and all, all actions of disobedience, really, they flow from unbelief, from not believing what God has promised. And so how can we look at our lives and, and observe this in a, in a more measurable way? So faith works in the heart, with the mind, to the faith. Let's close out here. The result of faith. Lastly, where, why faith matters. Why does faith matter? Uh, it tells us again in verse 2, the result of faith. It says, by it the elders obtained a good testimony. The elders here again is referred to, uh, referring to those ancients of old, those patriarchs of faith in Hebrews 11. And the reason why faith matters is, though it might seem foolish to the world around you to live by faith, the, the idea there of them receiving a good testimony means that they are commended by God. That God is pleased with faith, even when it seems foolish. Later on in verse 6, the scripture will say that without faith, it's impossible to please God. What's really cool about this chapter, as we, we close out here, wherever you're at with faith, I'm not sure how you feel about yourself and your faith today. You know, chapter 11 is not the hall of perfect people by any stretch. In, in fact, it could be called the hall of weak people. It, it could be called the hall of people with, with weak lives, with, with up and down spiritual lives. The hall of people that struggle to trust God. But I love that what's commemorated about, like God so loves faith that he's not so much just paying attention to our lapses of, of faith, but he's just looking at the moments of faith. He's like, yes, you trusted me. You're growing. I see it and, I, and I'm commending it. I'm pleased with your faith. Like, I want you to know today that God is a lot more pleased with your steps of faith 
than you can, can often remember and realize. He's, he's pleased with you if you've walked by faith. He's honored by that. He's not just angry at your lack of faith, okay? Where's the faith? Come on. He's pleased by steps of faith. And, and Hebrews 11 shows us that. It shows us the examples of imperfect people like you and me who are weak, but they have a strong God. And they place their faith in this strong God. You know, this, of course, it's summarized in the very person of Jesus who was strong for us when we were weak. In due time, when we were without strength, the Bible says, Jesus died for us, the ungodly. He died for, for people like you and me, sinners, who have, who have done everything to push God away. And yet still, God did everything to bring us near, to send his son, Jesus. And you know what God says? Here's what he says to do. He says, here's what you need to do in response to that. He says, have faith. Trust me for your salvation. Trust in the cross. It may not be much, but whatever faith you have, God's like, I'll take it. Place it in my son, Jesus, the perfect object of all faith. 